0: You may be seated. The first mountain I ever climbed well, was a mountain in kind of south central Colorado called Horn Peak. It's situated in the Sangre de Cristo Mountains. It stretches up into the sky some 13,500 feet. And one morning when I was 13 years old, my dad and I set out to summit Horn Peak. And we didn't make it, but we got very close. Because there's this site along the way, and in some ways it's the last thing you have to pass through in order to get to the very top, and it's this ridge near the summit called Little Horn. And Little Horn's only about 500 feet away from the summit, and there's a 13-year-old we had climbed up for a few hours and had made it all the way to to Little Horn. That's something like 13,100 feet into the sky, and it was there on Little Horn, that as a thirteen-year-old, an unexpected fear of heights suddenly just paralyzed me. And I told Dad I can't go any further. Yeah, the summit was within view, it was almost within reach. But it was due to fear that we turned around and, and went back. It was because of fear, fell just short of the intended goal. And I tell you that because when we come to our text tonight in Numbers, what we see is perhaps one of the most famous stories of fear in all the Old Testament. And it's fear that leads an entire generation of Israel to fall short of that which was in sight, to fall short of what they could almost touch, which was that fulfillment of God's promise that they would have a land all their own. And so what we're doing in the evening, in the coming months, if you weren't with us last week, what we're doing is, after having walked through in the morning all of Genesis and, and all of Exodus, we're trying to advance in something of an overview fashion, we're trying to advance the Old Testament story further, but, but taking a few key stories along the way that not only help us to understand how God has always been at work redeeming His people and bringing about His promises, but these stories that perhaps many of them with a singular sense of striking importance. They, they bring us a type or a shadow of Jesus Christ that we might know something not only of his person, but also his work. And these are stories that we are specifically choosing, not just because they're well-known stories, but, but stories that are, are so simple in their point that even a child can understand what we're meant to see from the text. And so what we're going to get to by the end of this evening is understand how even the apostolic church would, would take a story like ours in Numbers chapter 13 and 14 and use it as a key exhortation to new covenant Christians. But we'll get there by the end. The, the simple point that's meant for us to see in this story of the promised land today is that faith is required to inherit the promised land. It is a simple story with a simple point. Faith is necessary to inherit the promised land. And what I want you to see is, I just kind of briefly walk through chapter 13 and 14. We're not going to get to everything, but we're going to get to the most essential things. Uh, What I want you to see are three things that faith must lay hold of if it's a faith that is required to inherit The promised land. You're going to see that faith must lay hold of God's power. Secondly, faith must lay hold of God's wisdom. And then when we get to the middle part of chapter 14, faith must lay hold of God's grace. So if we want to catch ourselves up on the story to this point, uh, you remember that we left off in Exodus, as God had redeemed his people out of bondage and slavery, that it seemed as though God's promise to Abraham was coming to fruition. You might remember all the way back in Genesis, God told Abraham, here's my promise to you in covenant grace. You're going to have this offspring as numerous as the sand on the seashore. You're going to have land. And universal blessings going to come through your family. And when Exodus opens, you see that, that promise of offspring, it's seemingly coming to pass quite quickly and quite clearly. And by the end of Exodus, as God has redeemed Israel out of bondage and slavery, his, his presence, his glorified presence finally dwells with his people there in the tabernacle. And as we turn that page to Leviticus last week, we saw the, the story wasn't advancing forward with movement of the people, uh, but nevertheless, Leviticus is there to help us understand how we might answer this question. How can a holy God dwell with a sinful people? And we looked at Leviticus 16 and saw that it's only by atonement that it's possible for God's people to live in God's presence. And then when you turn to Numbers, you see that the people are picking up and moving again. And Numbers is a story that's helping us understand what about this land, that other part of God's promise to Abraham. Because when you turn your attention to chapter 13 of Numbers, what you need to know is that the nation of Israel stands there on the precipice of the promised land. It's time now to lay hold of that promise that God had given so many generations before to Abraham. And I want you to see first of all tonight that faith lays hold of God's promise power because look again at verse 1 of chapter 13 where he always spoke to Moses saying send men to spy out the land of Canaan which I am giving to the people of Israel from each tribe of their fathers you shall send a man everyone a chief among them and so it's quite clear right from the outset that the nation of Israel needs to know God is going to make good on his promise he says you need to choose one from each tribe and go spy out And notice again, verse 1, to the land that I am giving you. And so as the story advances, they choose these spies. But some of the spies seem to misunderstand their mission. Because they seem to think, well, let's go spy out the land and figure out if we should take it. And God has said, no, I'm giving it to you. Uh, You don't need to go figure out if you should take it. You just need to go figure out what is the land that you're getting ready to take. But maybe there are many times, perhaps even in your own life, when God has spoken clearly to you about what obedience means. And you begin to deliberate. You begin to discuss. You begin to debate. You begin to decide whether or not we should actually do what God has told us we should do, even when it seems like it's going to be a hard, costly following. Well, you'll see that, of course, as the story advances, these men are chosen. You skip down to verse 18. Their commission is clear. As Moses tells them that they're to see what the land is, and whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak, and whether they are few or many. What are their cities like? What is the fruit like? And so, forty days pass. These men go into the promised land. Uh, they come back where we picked up our scripture meeting a few minutes ago. Scripture reading a few minutes ago in verse 25, and you have a divided report, don't you? You have ten spies. And you say the land is great. But kids, what do they say? There are giants in it. Giant, in fact, in such a way that we seem like grasshoppers to them. There's no chance whatsoever that we can go into this land, they tell the congregation of Israel, and take it as God said he's going to give it to us. But then Caleb, you'll notice, speaks up. Look again at verse 30 of chapter 13. He says, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to to overcome it. This majority report in the subsequent verses, majority report saying, we can't take this promised land. It circulates among the people and it gets them to a place, notice their decisive outcry in verse 1 of chapter 14, then all the congregation raised a loud cry and the people wept that night. You see, they're falling short, aren't they, in the nation of Israel because they have not faith that lays hold of God's power. And maybe, it's stunning to you, because it should be, that this generation, of all generations, would doubt God's power to overcome their enemies. That's what had this generation seen. Really not that long before in their existence. Uh, they had seen God deliver them out of bondage and slavery in Egypt. Plagues fall upon the most powerful nation in the earth just because Yahweh said, let my people go. And then eventually... Pharaoh lets them go, and what do they see there at the Red Sea? But Yahweh with ease, he opens the waters. They pass through, and then in come the uh, Egyptian army, and he collapses the waters back on top of them, defeating all their enemies. They go out into the wilderness. They wonder, how is the Lord going to provide food for us? And virtually every morning except the Sabbath, no doubt, this heavenly, mysterious, supernatural bread arrives. Power, every single day, God will take care of you. And here they get on the promised land. It's within sight, it's within reach, and they say... You know, actually, I don't think he can do it. There's a Nephilim there. Giants. Huge men, children. Can God really do that? Well, faith must lay hold of God's power. But not just that. Faith, secondly, must lay hold of God's wisdom. God's wisdom. Uh, You'll see what they say in verse 2 and 3 of chapter 14, they cry out, would that we had died in the land of Egypt or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is Yahweh bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey and would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? I spoke recently with a, another pastor and minister and we were talking about this particular shepherding situation he was dealing with that had brought a noticeable amount of disappointment and, and discouragement in the way it was going. And as spoke with this brother, he realized there was this pattern that was repeating itself, this pattern that was generating all this disappointment and discouragement that the elders in the church were seemingly having to go through. And I said to him something to the effect of, you know, I guess it would be disappointing, wouldn't it, if it wasn't so predictable. And the nation of Israel's response here would be disappointing if it wasn't so predictable. Because they did the same thing, didn't they, already in the book of Exodus. Well, why don't we go back to bondage and slavery in Egypt? At least we have meat there, not this heavenly bread on the ground every single morning. Well, maybe we should go back to Egypt now. Because at least there's safety there, not these giants that oppose us. So aren't they failing in their faith in God's wisdom in bringing them to this point? Not just God's wisdom in bringing them to this point. God's wisdom in who he has placed over them. Because look again at verse 4. They said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Let us get us someone who will lead this retreat back to slavery. And you'll see as the text continues that Joshua... And these men that are leading the nation, Aaron and Moses, there's this great mourning, there's this great lament, they're crying out, urging the people not to make such a dastardly decision, but the people won't have any of it. It's a congregational decision, run rampant in its rebe- rebellion, because notice verse 10. Then the congregation said to stone them with stones. Sometimes fear, sometimes anxiety can so blind a people that not only do they want to reject God's wisdom, but it's almost as though they want to res- destroy God's wisdom given to them. And you'll see what it means to reject God's appointed leaders there in Israel. Look at verse 11 once again. How long, the Lord says to Moses, will this people despise me? He's saying, Moses, they're, they're, they're rebellion against you. Yes, of course, but ultimately what does that mean? They they despise me, and how long will they not believe in me? And in spite of all the things that I have done among them, and I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them. And Moses, I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. Now, if you have ears to hear, uh, the sequence of what's happening now might sound strikingly familiar. Because it was back in Exodus chapter 32 that fall of Israel into idolatry with the golden calf incident. At God's displeasure uh, was so noticeable and so strikingly vehement that he says, Moses, move away. Let me destroy this people and bring from you a new nation. And just as Moses at that time interceded for God's people, you find now in verse 13 and following, Moses mediates once again for a faithless people, telling us that faith must not only lay hold of God's power and God's wisdom, but also God's grace. Because if you just glance through verse 13 and 14, you'll see that Moses has these two grounds for his intercession. He simply calls God to recognize his glory, his fame is at stake in the nations, and then also his character. His character can't do this. And so you see what he says in verse 17 through 19, on this second ground of God's character. He says, and now please let the power of the Lord be Great as you have promised, saying, The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. That's quoting from what he heard from Yahweh in Exodus chapter 34, and he continues verse 19 Please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven the people. From Egypt until now. How many of you would find some gracious sympathy with Moses? Thinking of your own sin. Your own faithlessness before the Lord. Thinking, yes, from my very redemption. That moment of freedom from bondage and slavery. From my own Egypt till now. The Lord continues to forgive me. Moses interceding yet again knowing that the only way that they can get into the promised land is by God's grace alone. You know, I'm sure some of you know the name of John Newton. He was a famous pastor and hymn writer in England in centuries past. The most famous, no doubt, for having written Amazing Grace. And he wasn't a very good preacher. He was a great hymn writer. He wasn't even a very good teacher. He was a great letter writer, though. And throughout the centuries, his letters have often come down and encouraged many a countless Christian heart that's been discouraged and, and struggling. And I was reading through his letters not too long ago, and I came across one of his letters that he wrote to a friend after coming home from his church's midweek prayer meeting. And he said something to the effect of how cold were our hearts. And he said, There was not a tear shed amongst us all night in intercession. And surely for Moses, there's no cold heart as he's interceding yet again for this faithless people. We don't know if there were tears coming from his eyes, but no doubt there was a heart of overwhelming affection. The Lord, you cannot do this, he is saying. You have promised to save your people and you must save your people. And of course, his intercession is effective. Notice verse 20. The Lord says, I have pardoned according to your word, according to your prayer, and isn't it well, such a striking shadow of Jesus Christ? He who always lives to make intercession for his own. He who we read even earlier tonight in 1 Timothy chapter 2 is the only mediator between God and man. The only way sinful, faithless people can lay hold of the promised land is if someone intercedes for them. Someone mediates for them. And we have one that is greater than Moses, whose intercession, whose mediation is perfect in every way. Uh, What kind of faith is required to lay hold of the promised land? Well, it's faith that lays hold of God's power in salvation. It's faith that lays hold of God's wisdom in salvation. It's certainly faith that lays hold of God's mediator of salvation. And all of those things, no doubt, point us to the Lord Jesus Christ in every way. So as I said earlier, uh, what you'll find in the New Testament is is this passage uh, becomes a clear and striking passage for evangelistic preaching. You don't need to turn there because I'll just read a couple verses from it. But when you get to the book of Hebrews, particularly chapter 3, the author to the Hebrews begins to compare Moses and Jesus. uh, saying that, no doubt, Jesus is superior to Moses. And he begins talking about this rest of the promised land into which all of God's people must enter. And he says this at the end of Chapter 3, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Verse 16 through 19, he says, For who were those who heard yet rebelled? And was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, those whose bodies fell in the wilderness, and to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. He's using the story before us tonight, saying, Make sure that you do not fail to enter God's rest by faith. Because what I want to notice as we begin to close is how this story points us yet again to those outcomes and the only two outcomes that can ever belong to any single person. Uh, First, you can notice, and you must notice, that you can reject the Lord unto your judgment. That the faithless receive judgment. Because just look at verse 21 as the Lord continues speaking to Moses. What he's saying is, but truly as I live... And as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. And none of the men who have seen my glory. And my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness. And have yet put me to the test. These ten times have not obeyed my voice. shall i see the land that I swore to give to their fathers. And none of those who despise me shall see it. He's saying as the text continues. That all of that generation north of the age of twenty. All of them who have been faithless. In laying hold of the promised land. They're going to die in the next four decades in the wilderness. In judgment because of faithlessness. They got so close. But fear meant they didn't lay hold of what was before their very eyes. And the author to the Hebrews, if you even know that book quite well, he's telling a new covenant church, some of you are so close some of you have seen displays of God's power. Some of you have heard the declarations of God's glory. You've experienced his ordinances and his sacraments. You're so close. But you have not faith. True faith. Let's actually lay hold of the promise. And so it's why he continues in verse 1 of chapter 4 in Hebrews. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it, for good news came to us just as it came to them. And what is the good news? Well, well what God is saying, some, but not all of Israel, are going to experience judgment for their faithlessness. And he's saying too, some, but not all, will enter into the promised land. Notably, as we come to the final part of the text we're looking at tonight, look at verse 24. Faithlessness receives God's judgment, but the faithful receive God's joy. Verse 24 says, But my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land into which he went, and his descendants shall possess it. Faithless, even when it's within reach They fall short of the promise. But the faithful, who sees that promise, knowing God's power, knowing God's wisdom, knowing God's grace, here, using the words, he follows me fully. That's the kind of faith required to inherit the promised land. And I trust that many of you would agree with me. There are a few epitaphs that could be written upon your tombstone better than he or she has a different spirit. One born again in the new birth. He or she has followed me fully with faith that lays hold of what? Jesus Christ, who is God's power unto salvation. Faith that lays hold of whom? Jesus Christ, who has become to us wisdom from God. Faith that lays hold of the grace that's found in its fullness. And a savior who leads his people into the promised land. The intercessor that all of God's people need. Faith is required, isn't it, to receive the inheritance of God's promised land and rejoice that Jesus can take you in. Let's pray together. Lord, we do pray that you would stir within us a fresh eyes of affection for your work on our behalf in Jesus Christ, The eyes of faith that lays hold of that which is ours in your Son, Jesus Christ, knowing that it's not the strength of our faith that brings us into the promised land, but the strength of the one who holds us. And it's to him that we cling so desperately and closely. And we pray it in the precious name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.